This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In Sickness and in Health takes on added meaning for the wives of professional football players. Their husbands are subjected to blows on the field that can leave them with serious brain injuries. Emily Kelly, who lives in Boulder, is watching this unfold in her own marriage. Her husband, Rob Kelly, fulfilled a dream many little boys have to play football. Rob Kelly, the free safety. And he takes it to the far sideline. Still on his feet to the 30. Boy, Rob Kelly, the senior. The word on Rob Kelly, aggressive. That is when Kelly played for Ohio State. He went on to play in the NFL and retired in 2000 at age 28. His aggressive style of play has led to physical and mental problems. The league considers him totally and permanently disabled. And while it's not been confirmed, Kelly may be showing the effects of a long-term brain injury, like chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. His wife, Emily, recently wrote about their life together after football in the New York Times, and she's with me from Boulder. Welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing well. I appreciate your sharing your story with us. How did you know that things were changing with your husband, that he wasn't necessarily the man you'd married? Um, Well, around, I think it was about the end of 2013, there was a lot of symptoms that just came out of nowhere. Um, He was losing balance. He was... um, no longer hungry. He stopped eating. He'd forget to eat. You know, I, I wrote this in the piece, but I'd find uh, bowls of cereal, full full bowls of cereal all around the house. And um, he just was losing weight. And he stopped leaving the house. He, he cut himself off from people. And it was just, it was so extreme that I started to realize that something, you know, obviously was really wrong. You know, obviously um, he played in the NFL. And for, to him, to see him stumbling around, just like my toddler, my son was, you know, almost a year at the time, and he was falling and bumping into things as much as my my toddler was, my son. Uh, I just I knew something wasn't right, and it was it was really terrifying. I mean, especially to see him lose weight and not be hungry, and you know, just not want to leave the house at all, and it, it was just really scary. Yeah, he'd lost so much weight that friends who didn't necessarily know at first that he had played with the NFL just couldn't imagine that he had been a football player. That's how gaunt he got. And and you also say that yes. he became obsessive, like obsessed with you, yeah. obsessed apparently with doing laundry. The washing yep. machine was running all day. Um. So it, it appears that one of the symptoms of CTE, and I, I believe he has CTE. I, I, you know, no one can convince me otherwise after all these years and knowing him so well and seeing the changes. Um, I'm positive that he has it. But, you know, obviously you don't know for sure until after death and they examine the brain. But no. um, what I see with and I hear from all my friends who have husbands who are retired, have played, is that. OCD is a big symptom. It's one of the number one symptoms that these guys get. And it comes out of nowhere and it manifests in different ways. Um, One of my friends was just saying the other day, her husband is, uh, you know, obsessive about changing the furniture in the house and and, uh, vacuuming in the middle of the night. And for Rob, it's, it has been in different ways, like doing old laundry, washing old clothes, baby clothes, when my children had gotten older and, and no one was wearing this stuff and old towels and just the, the machine was going all day long. And I think, what is he washing? Because, you know, he wears the same sweats every day. He doesn't leave the house. And, um, you know, definitely becoming obsessive about me 
and what I'm doing and just it's I think it's all that um, energy that would been had been focused on playing sports. It just becomes focused on something that's in the house and something small and they, they fixate and they can't stop and let it go. And it's it's really scary. And I didn't realize what it was until I heard these other women say, you know, I haven't done laundry in 20 years or, you know, I've got the cleanest sink you've ever seen because, you know, my husband's mm-hmm. constantly scrubbing the sink out. And I'm like, oh, my God, I, I completely relate to that because I've seen it. You write in the piece, the first time he accused me of stealing loose change from his nightstand, I was speechless. Uh, that, was, yeah. that was really, um, well, the thing that was, I thought he was joking at first because he, you know, and the thing was that I realized that he had just forgotten probably that he'd spent it or, you know, he put it somewhere else and he came to me and he's like, I had $2 here or $3 or, you know, and he was basically implying that I took it. And it was this, I'm like laughing because I'm like, Rob, you know, we, we, we share a bank account and we've got tons of money in the, in the bank. And why would I steal from you and lie about it? And when I thought I could just rationally explain it and he became even more angry and more suspicious. And, and that was a, a, a point where I, it scared me because I thought he really believes this and he doesn't trust me. And he's not seeing the logic that in this, that it doesn't make any sense. Why would I take it? And if I, let's say I did like, oh, I needed to borrow a dollar, I would have told him, oh yeah, I, I took it. I used it for this or that. But um, he didn't, he didn't trust me all of a sudden. And uh, that was just, it was scary. You've talked about how confident you are that he is suffering from CTE, this long-term brain injury. And and you've noted that it can truly only be diagnosed for now, at least. They're trying to develop a test for the living. But for now, you have to examine brain tissue after someone is deceased. What makes you so convinced it's CTE? Well, there's a few reasons. Um, first of all, because I've, I've been with them for over 10 years and I've seen the changes. Um, and I've seen, I can look back and I think about how how different things were and how he never used to be this way or that way. You know, maybe there was some jealousy, but the obsessive jealousy and the not trusting, you know, it wasn't there. And, and that can go for so, I mean, I, I could go on and on about all the different symptoms that I've seen change over the year and progress and get worse. And there's just no reasoning for it. And also the memory problems. I mean, there was a time where he um, he thought we had a fight that was three weeks prior. And I had gone out and I came home and um, he had been in the shower and he came out and he was in a rage. And he started to bring up this fight that we had three weeks ago. And he had thought that it had just happened that day. And I had such a terrified look on my face and he saw it. I, I remember saying, I said, Rob, you think that happened today? And when he saw the look on my face, he stopped and he just walked away because I think he was so scared. He could see how afraid I was. I knew this isn't right, that he would he would confuse the time like that. He's young. It, it didn't make sense. And when I met um, or I connected with all these wives through this NFL group and we're all telling, I mean, the stories they're so similar. And it's, you know, I was just contacted last night by another woman and she's, she's telling the exact same story. I've heard it a million times. And, and then there's the stories where, you know, they're exactly the same, but yes, my husband's brain has been donated and yes, he has CTE. And every time, I mean, I've, the women in the group have been going through the symptoms, their husband has died, 
they're waiting for the results, and then they come back to the group and they say, yes, yes, yes it is. Every it, time. It sounds like this group is really important to you. So there is this, yes. this Facebook group of NFL wives who are struggling with mm-hmm. this. And gosh, it, it just gives me the sense that um, it has made you feel less alone. It's been, I can't even tell you how helpful it's been for me. Um, when I I read the first interview, this friend of mine, Liz Nicholson, she's very outspoken. And um, she was she was describing my husband. She was talking about her own husband, but it was Rob. And it, I had this sense of peace came over me that I just, somebody knew. And I contacted her and she added me to the group. And, and now I've got the phone numbers of all these women. I mean, 20 women, I've got their numbers. And we all the time, you can call me at any time. You know, I'm, I'll always be here for you. And um, that we all have this shared experience. And it's not just as the wives, but that our husbands, you know, it's like to know, I can go back and tell Rob, you know, I got contacted again last night. There's a guy going through the same thing as you. You're not alone. There's nothing, you know, when they, when he thinks it's me and, and years ago, he just, what's wrong with me? Like he had so much shame and so much guilt and I can now, he now knows and I can tell him it's, it's not your fault. All these men go through this. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We're speaking with Emily Kelly of Boulder. Her husband, Rob Kelly, is a retired NFL player who, because of uh, his career, his decades uh, in tackle football, is suffering uh, both mental and physical ailments. And um, I I guess just briefly, how, how is he doing today? I understand that you moved to Colorado in part for for his care. Yes. Uh, no, absolutely. 100%. I didn't think that he could survive another winter. Uh, we lived in Ohio in the Midwest, and the winters are very long and dark and gray. There's no sunshine. Um, it's, you know, Colorado is everybody's out. They're biking, they're hiking. And and I just, I moved us in one month. I said, we've got to get out of here. I don't, I'm afraid he won't live through it. And I was I was really, really scared. And I packed up our whole house and the two young children. And we were out here very quickly. And um, he, the first year we were here, um, he was still struggling. But in August of last year, um, he went into a brain injury treatment center. And he was there for about five weeks. And we got new medication. We started using cannabis as a medication. Um, he was using it before, but it was just sporadically. And we realized, you know, he has to take it every single day, the same amount every day. And we just really work on getting him out and getting him walking. And um, he's gained 40 pounds oh, in wow. the past five months. Yep. He's back to his normal 200-pound weight. And he's he's doing a lot better. And that for us, that means, like, today, you know, he's here with me today, we're going to go out to lunch. And that's like a big deal for us, you know, just getting out of the house together and, and going for a walk or, or having lunch together and, and just doing those little things um, to, you know, be part of the world. How do you feel the NFL has handled this? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, for our situation, we're, we're extremely fortunate because, um, and I truly believe that, that the reason why we lucked out is because Rob doesn't drink. Um, but the NFL gives us disability for life. It's the highest level. And um, less than 
2% of the men who've ever applied have gotten this permanent disability. And this level, I don't even know the number. It's probably less than 1%. So it's really hard to get. The NFL denies guys all the time. And I think they deny anybody who drinks because they'll just, they just blame it on, well, you drink and that's the reason why you have these issues. And um, so I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, we are taken care of monetarily from them. And um, I appreciate that. But I, I, I wish that Rob could have had informed consent 20 years ago. I wish he could have known. And they knew. They knew and they hit it. About this whole uh, NFL settlement, they are willing to pay uh, over a billion dollars as long as they never have to reveal how long they knew that CTE existed and how long they knew that football caused brain injury. That's the terms of the settlement. How has this affected your children? It's, you know, it's, it's, it's been, obviously, they're very young. Um, my stepdaughter's 10, and, and she's been able to, you know, she knew the way her dad used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, such a hands-on dad, amazing, the best father. I, I work with children. I was a teacher, preschool teacher, kindergarten. Um, I've never seen a, a guy, anyone, be so great with children and just play for hours and, and have so much patience and never be bored. And so she's been able She's seen the change. And my children, not so much because this happened a lot when they were babies, the the symptoms getting worse. But um, I've just been very, very open with them about football hurt daddy's brain. And, you know, when daddy's cranky, when daddy's sad, when daddy's quiet, it's, it's not your fault and it's not mommy's fault and it's not even daddy's fault. Daddy, his brain doesn't work like ours because he hit his head a lot, very hard for a very, very long time. And we just always talk about it with them um, so that they understand that there's something going on that that is not their fault because children tend to blame themselves. But, you know, I'm sure it's been very difficult. I, I can't imagine them not knowing and them just thinking, you know, what's wrong with my dad? They, at least they have some kind of answer. You talked um, about informed consent just a bit ago. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that your husband, Rob Kelly, would have played pro football if he had known? No. I know really? 100% that he would. No. Um, he actually turned down, after he played for the Saints, um, the Seahawks um, wanted to sign him. And he was actually in the room. He had the contract right there. He was about to sign. And he said, you know, I, I can't do this. And he's like, my heart's not in it right now. And he knows because it's such a violent game. And if your heart's not into it and you're not enjoying yourself, you're going to get hurt. And he's like, I'm not going to do it. And he quit football for a year before he signed with the Patriots. And he always has said, if I had known, I would. And I know my husband in and out. He would not have done it. He he's like, I wish I would have played soccer. He anything. He would have been good. I think at anything he would have done. I mean, in the article in the New York Times, you write of an occasion when Rob, who is a defensive back, suffered a concussion so severe that he tried to return to the field as an offensive player. Yeah. Um, and so you're aware of the kinds of blows that he suffered. Uh, yes. And you write about how Rob became obsessed with details for his funeral. And, you know, other former yeah. players like Dave Duerson of the Chicago Bears and Junior Seo of the then San Diego Chargers committed suicide because of the impact their brain injuries had on their lives. They yep. were diagnosed with CTE post-mortem. Do, do you think Rob had been planning on committing suicide? 
he, well, before we moved to Colorado, um, the last winter in Ohio was, I, I look back and I, I just, it was so, it was so bad. His, his depression isn't even the word to explain. I mean, I'm talking about someone who cannot eat, won't, can't eat, can't speak, can't move, is functioning in, in no way whatsoever. And the, it, depression doesn't describe, it's so dark and, and terrifying. And he would just go, you know, months without barely speaking a word. Like I'd ask like, what do you want for dinner? Or what should I pick up from the store? And he, he couldn't speak. He couldn't answer me. And when that time would kind of, when he'd come out of it a little bit, he would tell me, you know, Emily, all I could think about was suicide. I would just fixate. And it was just, he'd think about it and he'd obsess about it. Um, he wrote out a will, you know, luckily we don't have weapons in the house. And, and Rob has told me like, if I, if I could speak to any guys right now who are suffering, I would tell them just don't have a weapon in the house because hmm. you can go from zero to suicidal thoughts in a minute. I mean, it just, it just comes on. And, um, so I think it's something that people really need to be, you know, any ex NFL players that are suffering through this, they, they need to be aware of it because I was just speaking to a friend this morning who's her husband out of, you know, she thought it was out of nowhere. She looks back now, but he, he killed himself. And, um, I think it's just, it's so dark, the depression that they're in and, and the frontal lobe's been damaged and you just, you're impulsive and, and that's it. You sometimes refer to it as a caveman mentality, these fits of rage, this acting on, you know, a moment's emotion. I guess to wrap up, uh, Emily Kelly, will you let your children play football? No, absolutely not. Our son will not play football. And anytime somebody asks us, like, you know, should should my son play? My husband, adamantly, I am always right there agreeing, no, please. I mean, obviously people are free to make their own choices, their own decisions, but you just, you know, you wouldn't wish this on anybody. And I just, I don't think it's worth it. I think it's it's just too dangerous. And you don't know if you're going to be one of the people. You don't know if your children are going to be one of the people. There's there's so many sports out there. And uh, we know this is really a dangerous one. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank you so much. Emily Kelly of Boulder is the wife of former NFL player Rob Kelly, who played for the New Orleans Saints. And we talked about Rob's physical and mental struggles after playing tackle football for more than 20 years. Emily wrote recently in the New York Times a piece called, I'm the wife of a former NFL player. Football destroyed his mind. We'll have a link at CPR.org. And we'll be right back with how to better track the movement of marijuana. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. How to track Colorado cannabis is a growing concern. Police in states where marijuana is illegal, and even in Canada, want to know if the drug's being smuggled in from Colorado. On top of that, officials here want to be sure they're collecting proper taxes on pot. So how do you fingerprint a plant and the many things made from it, like edibles, body creams, and the smokable stuff, too? Well, the Institute of Cannabis Research, or ICR, at Colorado State University Pueblo is taking this on. Rick Kraminski leads the Institute, and welcome to the program. 
Great. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Absolutely. I'll say that state lawmakers are considering a bill to support your research. Tell us more about why it's important to track marijuana and cannabis products. Um, and I think you already introduced that in the, in the, the comments you just made. Um, Canada is curious about um, what can be done to help make sure that they're taxing their uh, cannabis properly. Um, in the United States, there's a, there is some limbo at the federal level, but there was the Ogden memo and then the Cole memo, which said that the Department of Justice would not be um, devoting resources towards um, arresting individuals um, that were compliant with state laws so long as those states uh, adhered to a few different criteria, and one of them was that the cannabis wouldn't leak out of the state. And so the idea here is that states that have legalized marijuana have a lot on the line uh, in terms of what the federal government might do and its responsibility to track plants and products. Right. So that's that's one key issue. Another, you mentioned the tax, uh, the tax component. So uh, tax the tax rates are different for recreational medical cannabis, and then there's um, so all the people who are currently compliant in Colorado, they're um, they're they're good stewards of 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 the regulations, and then there's the black and gray markets that aren't good stewards, and so this in some sense would be to help protect them. Well, there's been talk of using chemical isotopes to track, and this involves looking at atomic level differences in the cannabis plants and the things that are made from the plants. But I understand uh, these chemical isotopes, that, that, that has its limitations. Yeah, so um, looking at ratios of isotopes, that's been used for quite a while. And um, for instance, so oxygen from your high school chemistry, you might remember it's got um, a weight of 16, but there are naturally occurring isotopes that weigh a little bit different, like they weigh 18. And the, the ratio of oxygen 18 to oxygen 16 can tell you uh, about the temperature at the time. So when you're looking at to try and determine climate change issues, that's one of the ratios that gets looked at. Um, there's sulfur ratios. So in China, they look at to try and figure out where the sulfates are coming from, what kind of coal. They look at the ratio of sulfur um, maybe it's th- sulfur 36 to sulfur um, 32. And the idea is that this information, if you don't remember the, your, your high school chemistry class, this information can give you a rough estimate of where something might have come from. But I, I don't imagine it's as exact as saying uh, this is this plant. You know, this is a fingerprint for one plant or for one product. Right. So so it's been used um, to help track, say, cocaine and, and heroin over decades with the uh, Drug Enforcement Administration. They've been supporting that, but it's really very rough. So can something be done where you're um, maybe fertilizing um, a product in a certain way? So you introduce a slight variation of the naturally occurring ratios. Could that be one approach? There are lots of approaches that are being examined, so that's one of them. Could you apply a compound that has certain isotopic ratios? Oh, like spray a plant, for instance. Could you spray a, a plant in a certain way, right? I imagine that whatever course you take has to be easily tested in the field by the police. Right. So, So some of the isotopic ratio work that has been done that looks at really minute differences in these naturally occurring isotopes. 
And that requires extremely precise instruments that you couldn't do in the field. Okay. And so that's that's one of these issues. It's got to be cost-effective. You don't want to be penalizing um, growers who are fully compliant. You don't want to penalize consumers who are in states where everything is legal who are being fully compliant. And it's got to be fast and, and it's, accurate. It, it's got to be safe too, right? Uh, in other words, you don't want to put the public in any danger by adding something to a plant. Certainly. And and I, I know that we're talking about cannabis, but you could just translate this to any other agricultural product. So you could think of cotton and tracking that for the right strain or any kind of food product. You want to make sure that if you're having any additive, it's in very minute quantities, there's no allergy issues and so on. There's no FDA approvals for cannabis. So in fact, we would be uh, wanting to be even more strict than um, than possible to make sure that we're um, ex- exactly addressing those concerns. And uh, to that issue of cost, cost for the grower of that cannabis, cost presumably for the person who buys that cannabis, that has to be part of the consideration as well. What what avenue do you think will pan out? I mean, I realize it's it's early days, but what is the most promising path? To tracing marijuana. So the, the legislation talked about uh, applying a product to the cannabis, and we are looking at a few different variations. I don't want to go into any details because um, there actually are interesting intellectual property issues. We've actually huh. looked at prior patents uh, and so on, but you could imagine there are DNA solutions. So Lawrence Liverborn Lab had looked at um, applying DNA and then you could have a genetic barcode. So you could pretty much, it's similar to a barcode when you go into the grocery store right. and there's a scanning. So could there be a DNA solution? Could there be other compounds? Um, could isotopic ratios of applied compounds come, you know, come to be a solution? Uh, you talk about the legislation. So the legislature is considering the idea of funding this research at the Institute of Cannabis Research at Colorado State University, Pueblo. Is there money uh, make or break for you? Or does this research go on even if the state doesn't, doesn't We've got a up? lot of research projects underway. And, and we have been looking at tracking for a while. So we have some faculty and graduate students working on projects, uh, a variety of projects, but we do, we are looking at some tracking solutions. The, the, we're not doing it, um, you know, for any kind of addition to funding for our, our work. We're happy the state had mentioned that we would be, um, you know, the go-to group, and, and we're excited to be uh, trying to assist the state in, in a solution. Well, thanks for helping us understand this. Uh, my pleasure. That's Rick Kraminski. He leads the Institute of Cannabis Research at Colorado State University, Pueblo, which is looking for a practical way to track cannabis and marijuana products. Still to come, how wolves became domesticated dogs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's hard to imagine that a tiny lapdog like a Pomeranian is descended from wolves, but that's what domestication and breeding have resulted in. Journalist Gavin Erringer writes about our sometimes strange, sometimes wonderful relationship with domesticated animals in a new book. It's called Leaving the Wild, The Unnatural History of Dogs, Cats, and Horses. 
Herringer lives in Colorado Springs and describes himself as a former cowboy, a horseman, and a dog trainer. Howdy, Gavin. Hi, good to be here. You get into some sensitive territory in this book, uh, like the debate over shelter animals uh, versus pets from breeders. We'll get there a little later. But first off, what's the prevailing theory as to how wolves stuck around and over time became domesticated dogs? I understand it has to do with our trash. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, indeed, the early um, sort of prevailing idea throughout the 20th century was that we domesticated animals simply by finding wolf puppies on the trail and uh, finding them cute and making them into dogs, sort of Pinocchio-like. Okay. But around uh, the turn of the century, uh, a man named Raymond Coppinger, a professor, uh, and his wife introduced a new idea. And that idea was basically that uh, animals needed a, a niche. And that niche was provided by us living in villages. So the animals were attracted to the villages because we had trash. And that was how the domestication process began. They ate the trash, in other words. But this required us to be somewhat stationary. Uh, That is, when we were no longer nomads and we were starting to stay in one place, so did our trash. Yeah, the thing that was peculiar to me was the notion that Neanderthals, who'd been around wolves for close to 300,000 years, uh, had failed to domesticate a single one of them. And uh, frankly, we had not either for a period of tens of thousands of years when we lived in uh, Europe. So my idea was, uh, well, what was it that was different? And the answer was, well, we didn't live in villages. And it wasn't until we created that new village niche that the dog, the wolf, really had the conditions necessary to become the dog. To stick around and to eat our trash. And I I guess eventually uh, became tame enough for us to want them in our our homes and on our properties. Yeah, basically the wolves that were the friendliest, uh, that had the least inhibition toward being around people, were the ones that managed to stay. And uh, it's a complicated explanation, but there were also bio- biochemical changes that, that happened with those wolves uh, that resulted in them uh, physically changing form and becoming more like dogs. And then we refined that over thousands and thousands of years until we get to the Pomeranian uh, that you mentioned. <laughs> Authors don't always get to title their own books, but you did. You write, I chose leaving the wild because it implies willfulness on the animal's part. Uh, What do you mean? I I think we often think of domestication as a one-way street, right? It's people doing something to an animal. Yeah, and I think that idea, at least in the biological community, is changing. When 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 I started out writing this book, I was actually at the Denver National Western Stock Show. And there was a horseman named Buck Branham, and you probably all recall the, the movie The Horse Whisperer. Ah. Uh, Buck was the original Horse Whisperer, the character upon which the movie was based. And one of the things he said stuck with me and really provoked the book. He said, uh, these animals gave up their wild freedom in exchange for our care and protection, so we owe them our understanding. And the idea that it's a reciprocal arrangement really made sense to me as a person who's been around animals all my life. The idea that they gain something out of it and that there's some, on some level, some deep consent, some deep involvement. Sure. Well, if you look at these animals, dogs, cats, cows, and horses, what you realize is that these were the animals that won. I mean, they were successful because we've transformed the world and created these environments that are human, uh, entirely human created. And the animals that are thriving are the ones that are of utility to this. So that in, exce- in, a, in itself is a 
a huge plus for these animals. So what I wanted to examine is, hey, what did they get as a result? Or has it been fair? Do we give them our understanding and our care in the right ways? Well, you say, look at the numbers. Gray wolves, for instance, uh, number about 180,000 worldwide. Mm-hmm. But you say there are half a billion dogs mm-hmm. roaming planet Earth. Exactly. So purely from a species standpoint, it seems that dogs did rather well in this equation. They did. And uh, I think that um, that's a, a telling example. Again, the, I think of the dog really as a wolf that simply managed to evolve uh, to face the challenges of a human-dominated world. Uh, reading your book, I learned the Egyptians had dogs, revered them. But the British, during the Victorian period, really had a field day breeding dogs. And this was connected to the, the British Empire. Tell me about that. Well, empire is an important concept to the idea of dog breeds. Um, yeah, the Egyptians basically gathered dogs from throughout their empire and modified them over time until they became much more like what we consider to be breeds today. But the British took this to another level. They uh, began showing dogs in the 19th century uh, as a result of the interest of their Queen Victoria. And, of course, over time, gathered dogs from all over the world So for what they called the dog show fancy. G- give me examples of breeds we know today that are a result of that sort of amassing empire. Well, sure. They reached out to, for example, uh Japan for the Japanese chin dog. Uh, they also reached out to Tibet for the Tibetan Lhasa Apso. Um, you know, they, they went down to Africa and created the uh, the Basenji, which was really a result of finding a dog that was just a native dog and uh, creating a, a breed out of it. So it's not really fair to say that the British created breeds, but what they did is they created a system for standardizing breeds. Reading your book, I... Also learned the Old Testament contains 31 references to dogs, but all, all of them negative. <laughs> yeah, do, do, Dogs are apparently not uh, looked on favorably in the Bible. Well, I think different cultures look at dogs differently. If you look at the Egyptians, they, they revered dogs. They loved dogs. And they even had a god, Anubis, who was a dog. <laughs> um, but then dogs sort of fell into disfavor. Um, I think uh, the Romans loved dogs, too, so I can't really say that. But again, our affinity with animals seems to be cultural, and it's influenced by, um, you know, entire societies of people and their relationship with them. Yeah. I mean, speaking of that, dogs uh, were often for the wealthy, for royalty even. And you have a chilling scene in the book, the execution of Marie Antoinette, uh, quoting here, The queen's head fell, there was a moment's dead silence, then the loud, agonizing howl of a dog. In an instant, a soldier's bayonet pierced its heart. So perish all that mourn an aristocrat, he cried. Uh, Dogs were often really the the currency of the wealthy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think well-bred animals in general are the currency of the wealthy, whether we're talking about horses uh, dogs, uh, show animals, they're a prestige item, uh, like a car. <laughs> yeah. And one could say that breeds, in a sense, are uh, part of that prestige. That um, One woman said very uh, adroitly um, that uh, a dog is sort of like a car. People uh, want to be able to say, I have a BMW or a Mercedes, and they want to do the same thing by saying, well, I have a 
uh, a Pekingese or I have a um, exquisite poodle. And I learned a lot about about breeds in your book. Uh, it's called Leaving the Wild, and my guest is author Gavin Erringer from Colorado Springs. This is the unnatural history of dogs, cats, cows, and horses. Uh, I had no idea where the names of breeds had come from. The Border Collie, for instance, refers to a dog from the Scottish Borderlands. Yeah, Yeah, that's where you get Border Collie. And the ever-debated Pit Bull. Uh, Uh, Where does that word pit come from? Well, the idea of the pit is that they were used uh, for dogfighting. Dogfighting was a popular pastime and a legitimate dog sport uh, up, up into the 19th century. Uh, but when they made it illegal in England, um, a lot of the fighting went underground, literally, into the mines. And the miners would fight the dogs in the uh, mine pits. In the pits. Yeah. And so... I think in general, people have a sense that animal shelters are overflowing with pets and that adopting a shelter pet takes that pressure off. Mm-hmm. Um, but that perception conflicts with the numbers that you found in Colorado. How so? Well, not only in Colorado, but actually across the country, what's happening is there's been so much promotion of adoption for dogs, um, which is a good thing. Um, But now that we're reaching a place where the demand and the supply are in balance, and so we're having to go further and further afield to find dogs to meet the demand for pets. And recently, a Denver Post article actually ran a piece on that uh, where uh, tens of thousands of dogs are being brought into Colorado every year just to meet the demand for pet dogs. Shelter pets are being imported to meet the demand. And and give us some of the reasons behind why the pet population is not where it used to be. Well, the that, main that reason is when, in the 70s when I got my first pet, uh, people were breeding dogs. Uh, dogs were not neutered and spayed to the degree that they are today. And so it was not uncommon for dogs just to get together and produce a unplanned litter. And people were literally walking into shelters with boxes of puppies. And I remember that as a kid, you could go in and pick out a puppy at just about any public shelter in the country. That's no longer true. Um, Most people, most responsible pet owners uh, spay and neuter their animals. And so we're not seeing these accidental breedings except in a few communities. And we're only seeing a few uh, breeds that are really being overbred. And so in shelters, there is a disproportionate population of, you write, pit bulls and Mm -hmm. chihuahuas. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, nearly a third of the dogs that are being uh, brought into uh, what are called um, public shelters or, as they say, kill shelters, ones where the dogs are being euthanized, are pit bulls. And um, chihuahuas are also another breed that are being uh, profligately overbred. Um, what are the reasons? I think one of them is economic. Uh, people are trying to make a fast buck by breeding pit bulls, and they've become very popular, uh, partly as a result of promotion and, and, and a PR campaign by the pit bull community. Um, Chihuahuas is a little more difficult to say. I, I think that publicity helped to advance that breed, um, but also that there are a lot of people in the um, lower-income communities that favor pit or chihuahuas, and um, they just don't get them spayed and neutered. Ah, and thus the overpopulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about dog breeders. You really ask breeders to rethink their perception of reputable breeders, but you also point to the excesses of breeding, and in fact, you lived it. Tell me about your late dog, Kona, an Australian shepherd. 
Yeah. Um, well, what the book is really about is my idea is that uh, responsible breeding is the key to have better lives for dogs. And uh, the whole book really is about breeding. I think the next wave of animal welfare, animal rights, is the realization that if we that that an animal's quality of life begins before it's ever born. Hmm. Um, and so if we can breed animals that are bred for health and that have value, uh, they tend to have better lives. Now, the story of Kona is kind of a sad story, but I, uh, I got her from the um, Golden Retriever Rescue of the Rockies, and she was um, just a lovely, wonderful dog. Uh, she stood out like crazy because she had blue eyes and she was among all these Golden Retrievers. She was a blue-colored Australian Shepherd, but she... Um, was an example of a dog that was not bred with care. She developed epilepsy, and we we pretty much determined later that it was a result of uh, incautious breeding. And uh, so on a number of occasions, she had seizures, and I finally had to put her down, and it was just heartbreaking. Yeah, you write uh, very emotionally about these seizures Uh that she endured and that you endured with her. Yeah, and the, the point of having her in the book was not just to have a tearjerker, but really because I wanted to show... Um, that there is an upside, that there were people who responded to that in the Australian Shepherd community and have done excellent work in trying to eliminate the problem of epilepsy from the breed. And that is a story that's true in a lot of breeds. Uh, I think purebred breeders get knocked uh, for what they do. But to be honest, they're mostly passionate people who have a true interest in their animals and in the breed and want to do right by them. And they're taking care and steps to uh, eliminate genetic problems and to solve uh, some of the problems that uh, are associated with purebred animal breeding. I have perhaps revealed a personal bias here, Kevin <laughs> or that we have focused mostly on dogs in this conversation. <laughs> I mean, I guess I'd call myself a dog person. I've had cats and loved them. Uh-huh. Um, let's not give them short shrift. In sure. researching this book, Leaving the Wild, what's the most fascinating thing you learned about the domestication of cats? Well, the greatest story, one of the great stories in the cats uh, section is about cat kitty litter. Um, there was a guy who came up from the Second World War, and he got involved in his dad's business. And just to make a long story short, they uh, they created industrial products that would clean up oil stains and things like that. Okay. Well, one of them was clay, and that clay became cat- kitty litter. And literally, it transformed the lives of cats. They moved from living in the outdoors on farms and in rural areas to living indoors. And uh, over a period of decades now, the the cat has supplanted the dog as America's favorite pet. And that may be in large part because kitty litter allowed us to have them cleanly in our homes. I think it's largely because of kitty litter. And it just goes to show you how little changes can vastly influence the lives of of our domestic animals. Indeed, and almost uh, press the fast-forward button on evolution to some extent. Yeah, and I think another interesting thing I talk about in there is how millennials uh, are such uh, an avid cat lovers, and I think that has partly to do with the Internet and the popularity of these uh, humorous cat videos and these, <laughs> these cat celebrities, if you will. Uh, what about cows? I understand you're wowed by the gains in milk production. Oh, it's it's amazing, Ryan. I mean, uh, 20 years ago, uh, cows produced about, well, I, I could name the numbers, but it was about 18,000 pounds of milk a year. Milk is measured in pounds because volume is easy to cheat on, and it's an old tradition. Today, there there's cows that are producing 50,000 pounds of milk a year and more. 
And it's largely because of advances in breeding and also to some extent uh, the use of, um, of hormones in the milk. But um, this is creating a situation where today's cow is a severely overworked mother. She's having to produce uh, milk at the same time she's uh, gestating a, a calf. And uh, one person, this was amazing to me, one person compared it to a Tour de France cycle rider riding every single day. My goodness. Uh, just a slight picture into the domestication of animals. Gavin Erringer of Colorado Springs is the author of the new book, Leaving the Wild. We'll post a photo of him and his current dog, Onda, plus an excerpt to CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And now for something unbalanced, that is Denver's housing market, with way more buyers than sellers. In fact, it's perhaps the best seller's market in the metro area ever. And if you're a buyer, welcome to frustration. Why is this happening? CPR business reporter Ben Marcus sat down with Joanne Allen to answer that. We've all heard of seller's markets, and that's where Metro Denver has been for the past few years. But now, Ben, we seem to have entered new territory. Right. So Denver now has the lowest number of active home listings in the metro area's history, at least as far back as the numbers go. And it's one of the lowest levels of housing supply in the country. So Remax did a report recently, and they found that of the major U.S. markets, it could find only two cities with fewer homes for sale. That was Seattle and San Francisco. And so the question is, why is supply so low? So on the new home side, builders aren't building enough homes. Metro area contractors started 12,000 new homes last year. It sounds like a lot, but it's actually thousands and thousands fewer than what they would typically start in the years before the recession. So that it never got back to where it was in terms of home construction in the Denver area. And they say that's due to a couple of things. It's a lack of lots to build on, like spaces to actually put the house it's also a lack of qualified labor to build them. So you can find labor, but it tends to be a little bit more expensive because contractors are competing for people. Well, that's the new home side. Why are there so few existing homes for sale? Well, this is a bit more of a mystery. So there's a theory that's been floated by a prominent housing economist that during the recession, investors swooped in and purchased many of the foreclosed homes that hit the market. Home prices had fallen. A lot of people had lost homes. Investors came in. They bought up a lot of those homes. They turned them around and they rented them out. So even though prices have gone up so much in the last five years, these investors are not putting these homes back on the market. And so it must make sense, at least to these investors, to keep renting them out. Are there other factors that have led to this really low number of homes on the market? So there's evidence that people in the Denver area and across the country, really, are living in their homes almost twice as long as they were before the Great Recession. And that's a big shift. People just aren't putting their homes up for sale. Instead, many are remodeling them. They're making them more livable as they get older, or they're just sprucing them up to make them nicer because you're going to live in it longer. It's a bit of a catch-22. So people may not be listing homes because it's hard to find another home, but it's hard to find another home because so few people are listing their homes for sale. Well, there are a few homes for sale and few homes being built at the same time the population keeps growing. How does that factor in? 
So that's the demand side of the equation. About 300,000 people have moved to the metro area in the last six years. That's a lot of people. And they're competing for an ever-shrinking pool of affordable homes. And the appetite to own a home is still high for many people. Now, rents have stabilized recently, but they're still quite high. They're up more than 40% in the last five or six years. So this is frustrating for buyers who want to buy a home. They're looking for homes. They go to open house tours that are crowded with people. And by the time that tour is over, sometimes that house can have multiple offers. So that's where that frustration comes in. It's been described to me that this is, in a way, the new housing crisis, that 10 years ago it was about people getting kicked out of homes, and now it's about people not being able to get into a home. And that's a problem because homeownership is a primary way that many people in the middle class will build wealth. As buyers deal with this incredibly low inventory of homes for sale, it must be having an effect on people. That's right. And we actually want to hear from more home buyers here at Colorado Public Radio about how they're dealing with this. Are you frustrated by the lack of affordable options? Are you moving to or thinking to move to cheaper, far-off places like Colorado Springs and then commute into Denver? We've heard a little bit of that. Uh, Maybe you're building a dwelling unit behind mom's house. Whatever it is, we want to hear your story. Let me know. Email me at business at CPR.org. Again, business at CPR.org to reach Ven Marcus, our business reporter, talking there with Joanne Allen about the lopsided housing market in Metro Denver. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. 